Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Welcome back. Nice to be back with you. And also, Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. We're all here. Yay! I don't think, unless I'm forgetting something, I don't think I've ever missed two Pro Se's in a row. So I really was like, I mean, I'm getting the shakes about not being on the mic with you guys. I need to be back here. <laughs> you, have, you have withdrawal. That's, well, that's, the most, that's the most pathetic type of withdrawal <laughs> I've ever heard of. The least fun kind of withdrawal. Uh, the kind where it's like, give me that sweet, sweet legal news. Yeah, not even listening to a podcast, just participating <laughs> in one. Yeah, it's yeah. wholesome, is what it is. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Look, I did miss you guys. Good I'm to have glad you back. to be back on a week where we have some pretty big stuff to talk about. Yeah. John Hill, our senior banking reporter, joins Haley and I a little later in the show to talk about an existential crisis for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I'm not even exaggerating saying existential crisis. No, it is not. Not a leap. Yeah. And so (laughs) we get John to sort of break down a big ruling about the constitutionality of that bureau and um, all of the fallout that's happened since the ruling came out. Always great to have John on the show. He uh, he brings the heat every time, and that is uh, a very interesting story. So stay tuned for that. But before that, uh, we do have some news to get to, and I will start us off here because we have yet another round of legal headaches for the business empire of one Donald Trump. Are you guys familiar with this? Have you heard about this? I've never heard of any legal troubles for that organization. <laughs> yeah, um, right. It's actually so many legal troubles, Alex, that I'm I'm really glad you're going to break it down because it's just easy to get lost in what's going on. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I think what we want to say, though, is that news items pop up here and there, and we try to have a pretty discerning eye for this stuff here at Pro Se about like what is actually important for you guys to know about. And what you need to know about this week is that we have an honest-to-God criminal trial. It's already underway in Manhattan, and the scope of this case is pretty narrowed. But it could be a little bit of a sign of things to come, a little bit of a bellwether, um, as there are sort of other challenges to various Trump entities kind of waiting in the wings. So there's a lot to peel back here. Yeah. Tell yeah. us where this puzzle piece fits in. What aspect are we going to focus on today? I don't want to out us here, but when we were <laughs> talking about this at our production meeting yesterday, we were all like, wait a minute, which we're like sifting through a mountain of uh, similar sounding cases in even. <laughs> New York, even. And we were like, which one is this? Even the pros do it, folks. We got <laughs> to get our facts straight before we turn the mics on. The first thing, and, and we will get to the various distinctions between like uh, what's going on in this criminal trial and some of the other cases that we've talked about on this very show. The first thing I want to say, though, very loud and clear, because this has gotten kind of talked about a little bit casually in the mainstream press, and I just want to say very clearly that neither Donald Trump himself nor his adult children who work in the company are on trial at all. They are not named in this case at all, and I just want that to be stated very clearly here at the top. But this is a criminal case brought by the Manhattan District Attorney against the vast corporate empire that bears his name, that is the Trump Organization. And what we are talking about here in some is corporate tax fraud. And at the center of this case is this alleged scheme that saw two businesses within the Trump organization. They're called the Trump Corporation and the Trump Payroll Corporation. They are accused of basically giving very valuable benefits like rent-free apartments and luxury vehicles and other kind of pay-fors or or, uh, payoffs rather to top executives at the company 
who then did not pay taxes on those kickbacks, on those perks. Now, the potential penalties here are quite small when you consider the scale here. Uh, They max out around $1.7 million, which is kind of something like a speeding ticket for a huge business conglomerate like the Trump Organization. But there's, as is usually the case with Trump-affiliated entities, there's more going on here than just the dollars and cents. And in this trial, what people are going to be looking at here once it gets underway on the merits is that a key ally of the Trump business empire has already flipped to cooperate with the government and is testifying against the company. So that is that has a lot of people closely watching this. That always brings some intrigue, right? When someone flips on an organization, what do we know about the person in that position? So this isn't just some uh, random lackey who decided to save his skin, some like low-level operative at the Trump Organization. This is Alan Weisselberg, who is the Trump Organization's former CFO, Ooh. and he's a close associate of the family, stretching back uh, more than 50 years when Donald Trump's father, in fact, made his name in the New York City real estate game. So he's a long-time conciliary, really, to the family. And as this case was kind of plodding along, he pled guilty just a couple of months ago in August to partaking in this benefit scam that I just laid out. And he is going to be taking the stand to testify about the Trump business's role in it. And that actually took the Trump Organization defense by surprise a little bit. Uh, One of the tidbits in the stories that we wrote was that shortly after Weisselberg flipped, the Trump Organization lawyers were kind of unprepared for questions about it in open court and kind of got like a rapping from the judge. They were that they were that caught off guard that it was oh my gosh. that on the down low. Yeah. Wow. So that's kind of the central drama here. The defense for the attorneys for the Trump organization, as you might expect, are expected to argue that Weisselberg was sort of a rogue actor here and that, you know, in his specific case, he got perks like rent comped on his Upper West Side apartment a leased Mercedes, private school tuition for his grandchildren, and that Weisselberg himself just opted not to pay taxes on that stuff. That's what the Trump organization is going to argue, that it's not some institutional problem. It's just one executive gone rogue. Um, And I just, you know, again, I want to say, like, having a very close ally of Trump's on the stand is, is really no small feat. And if you are able to hang a conviction with Weisselberg's cooperation, it would give the DA's office a pretty high-profile win, even if the monetary penalty that I that I laid out is relatively minor. I know uh, Frank Runyon is is out there covering this trial for us, and he the past few days has been focusing on one of those areas that I would say we here on Pro Se get too nerdy about, which is jury selection. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm just like truly fascinated whenever there is a case involving names like this. How do you scrounge up jurors? Yeah. So what's been going on the with this one? Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting. Um, I've read all of Frank's stories. And if you're interested in this, you should also read Frank's stories. And as you were kind of alluding to there, Haley, finding completely impartial jurors against the Trump organization in New York City, <laughs> looks to be proving a little bit to be a little bit of a challenge. So according to Frank's uh, coverage, uh, one woman who was a potential juror used the words hate and despise to describe Trump. 
But she nevertheless said that she felt she could be impartial in the case. She, she felt she could set that aside. There was another potential juror who had even harsher words, but also said he could be an impartial juror. And he used some pretty interesting logic to get there. Here was a quote from that coverage. Quote, I think Mr. Trump has no morals. I think he thinks only of himself. I think he is a criminal. I think he has done irreparable damage to this country. That's a quote. But then this guy added that he could still sit on the jury because the conduct at issue uh, regarding this sort of corporate tax fraud, allegedly, in this case, was, quote, trivial compared to the terrible things that he has done. (laughs) I mean, the logic there is tortured, but this is also kind of putting me in mind of when Martin Shkreli, pharma bro, was going through his trial. People also really had super strong things to say about him. So this does come up from time to time, especially in New York courts. Yes. And I should say both of those jurors who I just relayed those anecdotes about, they were both dismissed, even though they both made cases to sit on the jury. And that's been a theme. I mean, that's coloring up a lot of the jury selection coverage here, Haley, as you were saying, as you're as you're attuned to it. You know, just the idea that to find a dozen or so people who do not openly despise the former president or even openly embrace him, I suppose. Yeah. It's yeah, proven to be a like challenge. The, the feelings are strong in both directions. There's they not are. much neutrality. That's true. There has been a lot of like, they've had to throw out a lot of bias against so far. But anyway, the point is they have their hands full trying to trying to get a group of people to hear this case. Well, Alex, can we circle back around now that you kind of yeah. know where this one is you know, kicking off? What is going to happen with the other cases? Does this have an impact on the other things we're following around the Trump organization? Well, one thing that I think is really interesting about this is that this sort of now very attenuated tax fraud case grew out of a much wider, much more vast investigation into the finances of Trump himself uh, on the suspicion that he was artificially inflating the value of certain assets in order to get more favorable deal terms from lenders and insurers. That investigation was launched by Cy Vance when he was still the Manhattan DA. And that investigation was into Trump himself in his personal capacity. And it was reported that uh, evidence for a potential indictment was being presented to a grand jury. It got like that far down the road. But the new Manhattan DA, uh, Alvin Bragg, when he took office in January, he called off the dogs against Trump in his personal capacity and just kind of tried to focus in on what he thought was a, was a winning case here in this tax fraud question. Now, crucially, something has, has filled that gap, though, and that is a civil case. Again, the trial that we just talked about is a criminal tax fraud case, but a civil case was filed in September by New York Attorney General Letitia James. We actually talked about that on Pro Se, so if you were scratching your head like we were in the production meeting saying, wait, didn't we talk about something like this? That was on episode 267. And again, that is a civil case that basically resurrects the initial aim of the DA investigation, which is that Trump, his children, and the Trump organization inflated the value of certain assets to get tax breaks and favorable financing terms from lenders and insurers as they were doing business in New York for like over a decade to the tune of like $250 million. So we will be keeping an eye out to see what happens at trial here. And, you know, stay tuned. to. Uh, uh, according to Frank, this criminal trial is going to last roughly a month. But regardless, I would say that, you know, New York's crusade against the former president is far from over uh, as there are much sort of bigger fish to fry down the road. 
So for our second story, I'm going to take a pretty hard pivot here from a broad tax fraud case to something a little more uh, personal or understandable for an average person listening today. Should you get paid for the time it takes you to boot up your computer? 100% yes. This is so timely because yesterday my... Well, this was during work hours, so I was already getting paid. But (laughs) my work laptop kept spontaneously restarting like every 10 minutes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Updates. Updates. Yeah. And I... It was a it was a big headache. Okay. Anyway, Haley, anyway, what does were, the Ninth Circuit say? <laughs> you're right. You're right on board with the Ninth Circuit. Way to get us back on track, Haley. Good job. <laughs> yeah, you did it. The Ninth Circuit agrees with you, Haley. They Woo. said a group of call center workers should be paid for the time it takes for them to boot up their computer. <laughs> I suspect this is like some iteration of. I know that this that this works its way through uh, employment law in various iterations. The stuff that you're if you're not on the clock yet, but you're kind of doing job-related stuff and booting up your computer is another iteration of that. What are the facts here exactly? Yeah, you're exactly right, Alex. There's a lot of iterations of what bits of duties are actually compensable and which ones are not. If they're too small to count, you know, a lot of stuff about putting on protective gear. They call those donning and doffing. You hear those a lot. Okay, so this one is an overtime collective action under the Fair Labor Standards Act. It's brought by a group of call center employees who worked for a company called Customer Connects. I would like to point out two N's, two X's. That's how you know. (laughs) They are on the cutting edge uh, of whatever industry they are in. Okay, so the workers there, their customer service, um, they provide that and they basically schedule via this phone system that's accessed only through their work computers. And according to the workers, depending on which computer you're trying to boot up in their Nevada call center, it could take up to a half an hour to get it fully up to speed to start your call. That is a long time. So they sued. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an up to. So just a little caveat there. But they sued and a lower court issued a summary judgment ruling actually in favor of the company calling that computer login process the electronic equivalent of waiting in line to punch in on like a physical time clock. And that's not compensable under federal law. My sort of antenna went up as well, Haley. That is a long time for a computer to wait to boot up. I mean, as you say, that could have been an extreme example, and they are able to cite that as up to. But anyway, it's an interesting thought exercise, just as even if you strip away the legal angle of like, when am I working? When am I waiting to begin working? What can you pay me for? The lower court, as you say, appears to just say you're wait. It's almost like you're waiting to get into the building or whatever. But it sounds like the Ninth Circuit took a different view. What was actually asked of them on appeal here? The key question here faced by the appellate court was whether turning a computer on and off is integral and indispensable to the worker's principal activities. I'm emphasizing some words there that are the actual like key ones. Mm -hmm. In this case, the principal activities of the job were receiving customer phone calls and scheduling appliance pickups. That's what they were working on. The Ninth Circuit said, of course, it's indispensable because the workers couldn't do the key parts of their job without turning on and booting up their work computers. The phone systems worked through those computers. All of the tracking of the calls, all of that is through the computers. There is one wrinkle here. The Ninth Circuit panel did say in a footnote that the opinion focused on the booting up of the computers to like start their workday, not in turning them off at the end of the day. So they said that maybe isn't compensable because it might not be an integral part of the job to turn it off at night. You know, a lot of computers go into sleep mode, that kind of thing. So that would have to be sorted out at the lower court level. 
The ruling itself is actually in lockstep with a Tenth Circuit decision that found an obvious connection similar to this one, um, where some call center workers also had to start up various programs on their computer. And um, the Tenth Circuit said that that was work that should be paid as well. Okay. I'm curious to uh, to get producer Kelly's take on this uh, this notion that turning it off is not a key part. <laughs> yeah. As a recovering IT guy, not to out you, Kel. My, uh, my mom, who's in IT, <laughs> is like, you turn that sucker off at least once a week, or at least you know, back in the olden days. That's hey, what she maybe said. this is maybe this is what we'll be arguing yeah. back at the lower court. I did want to kind of end on a few sort of little things, just sort of tidbits we should know from this ruling, because the face of yeah. it's pretty straightforward. But my two quick things: first, the Ninth Circuit, as I said, did send the case back to the district court to consider whether that shutting off time is compensable. Also, whether the boot up time is so de minimis that the company doesn't have to pay for it. That has to be sorted out on a factual basis. They sent that back to the lower court. The other notable thing here, the Labor Department had backed the workers' position at the Ninth Circuit. And I point that out just to say, if you are a company with workers who have to log into computers to start their day, you should probably take this pretty seriously because now we have the Ninth Circuit and the Tenth Circuit both saying, yeah, you have to pay for that for these call center workers. And so with the Labor Department also backing that position, I think we may see some additional suits like this. So something for all the employers out there to consider. A recent Fifth Circuit ruling that said the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is unconstitutionally funded could have far-reaching consequences for the agency and its work. The decision has already spurred a flurry of filings from companies looking to get CFPB cases thrown out. And the agency's responses to those challenges are giving us a glimpse into what's to come. Here to walk us through the bombshell decision how it's being applied, and what the future could hold is Law360 senior banking reporter, John Hill. Welcome back to Pro Se, John. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Boy, are we talking to you at an exciting time, John. I mean, can't get much bigger than, hey, uh, the way this entire bureau is funded is unconstitutional. Can you kind of give us the lay of the land there? How did we get to that bombshell ruling? Yeah, I mean, the people that I'm talking to see this as really an existential threat to the CFPB. And it is an agency that has been under fire for a long time. Um, there has a lot of critics. And a lot of this centers around the way it was first designed. So in a sense, there's an original sin to the CFPB, and that is in Dodd-Frank. So this was you know, more than 10 years ago at this point, the way the Bureau was set up. There were a lot of questions about whether it was given too much power and how that power is structured within the agency has been an ongoing source of problems in the courts for the agency. That's what this case is all about. So what exactly did the panel hold in this rather significant ruling? Well, I guess I should take you back to how this litigation actually started. There have been a number of cases over the years that have um, been brought by the Bureau or against the Bureau where there have been constitutional challenges raised. But this particular case came out of Texas. It was a, a challenge to a rule that the CFPB issued a number of years ago at this point, but it was about payday lending. And actually, those rules never went into effect, but the challenge uh, involves a number of attacks on was the rule properly issued? Was it arbitrary and capricious? You know, did it go too far, overreach, et cetera? And part of the argument there was that the Bureau itself is unconstitutional. 
And there were some you know, nuances to that argument. But basically, that was one of the um, threads in this particular challenge. It ended up getting rejected by a Texas federal judge. He looked at the bureau structure and said, no, it's fine. Everything's fine here. Uh, they appealed. And the Fifth Circuit and its panel decision kicked the tires on the rule. They looked at all the different parts of the rule and said, basically, no, this is fine. You, know, you were acting within your authority. However, the thing that it got tripped up on was this issue of the CFPB's funding structure. Now, the Bureau gets funded from the Federal Reserve. It gets its money from there up to a certain cap. It does not get funding from Congress, you know, through appropriations, so to speak. And there are a lot of financial regulators that are, are funded like this. The Fed is funded like this, the OCC, the FDIC. It's a common technique to help ensure the agency's independence. You don't want it to be subject to sort of political meddling if, if every year it has to go to Congress to get its budget renewed or, you know, whatever. So this was a strategy that the Bureau's framers decided would be good for the Bureau. But uh, the Fifth Circuit said, well, this is actually unconstitutional because what it does is violates the separation of powers. In the Constitution, there's something called the Appropriations Clause, which says that uh, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. It's a fancy way of saying that any spending from the government has to be specifically approved and authorized by Congress. Now, the idea that the Bureau can get its funding from the Federal Reserve means that, well, Congress doesn't have to actually renew its budget every year. It's sort of on a, a fiscal autopilot, so to speak. And for a lot of uh, conservative critics of the Bureau, this is a real problem. And in this case, the Fifth Circuit panel said, well, that, that actually is unconstitutional. It bought those arguments. And in a sense, the proverbial uh, spaghetti is thrown against the wall. This was the strand that stuck. This was the thing that actually ended up, <laughs> for the panel anyway, saying that this rule has to be invalidated. It's this rule that they were challenging because it was financed with this kind of illicitly drawn money, you know, this unconstitutional funding source. You can't keep it. It's got to go. So that's how we got to where we are today. It's really kind of a catch-22 there, right, John, where it's like, we don't want this bureau to be anything less than independent. So let's bypass this Congress part. But then that is what exactly what makes it unconstitutional now, at least according to the Fifth Circuit. Yeah, well, it's an unusual situation because, again, so many of the other financial regulators have similar structures. You know, they're independent in different ways. Sometimes it's through the way that they're structured at the top, you know, how their leaders are appointed and, and right. what kind of job protections they have, which has been another issue that the CFPB had to deal with. But uh, in this case, it dealt with the funding structure. And again, other agencies have similar funding structures, but there's been kind of this ongoing issue with how do, in the courts anyway, do you distinguish between let's say, how the Fed is designed, or the FDIC versus the CFPB. It's, it's honestly kind of a messy decision. The way that they actually try to, to draw this line, it's not particularly well articulated, I would say. It's not that clear. And so it does raise some questions about other agencies, you know, in the long run. Are those structures constitutional? Is the Fed being funded in an inappropriate way? Uh, there, there are some ongoing questions that I think we'll, you'll see in other litigation possibly down the road against those agencies. However, in this particular case with the CFPB, it opens up an entire can of worms because everything the Bureau has ever done has been funded through this mechanism. You know, so, so right. it's really, it's like saying that, you know, every, uh, all, all the bread that you baked with the flour was like the flour was tainted. So you have to recall all that bread, like everything you have ever done at some point could be on the line here because that's rules, that's enforcement actions, that's guidance. You know, the, the lifeblood of the agency has been its funding. So if that is inappropriate and is enough to get a rule invalidated, what else could it get invalidated? And that's what we're seeing actually being tested right now and all sorts of filings that have now sprung up in the wake of the Fifth Circuit's decision. 
Well, why don't you tell us about some of those? Yeah. I'm mean, very we, curious. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that all these companies now are like, okay, let's go. We've that's right. Because they already didn't like CFPB. So this is yeah. a perfect opening for people that want to challenge things that have happened through that uh, body. So what are you seeing so far, John? Well, you're, you're seeing exactly that. You're seeing a lot of enforcement action defendants say, take a look at this. We, you know, we, were, we were right. This confirms what we said all along. We we're vindicated that the Bureau is unconstitutionally funded. And, you know, therefore, it cannot continue with this lawsuit against me. And that's now been made in about a half dozen cases I've seen so far. And there really are, are coming more every day. Well, you get some sort of variation on that argument. You know, it's either the lawsuit itself is a problem or that the rule that they were accused of violating is a problem. Uh, or maybe that they were, um, you know, had a settlement that they entered into before that, well, you know, that's now technically invalid if it was paid for with this uh, unconstitutional funding source. So you're seeing all these kinds of different attacks from, from different kinds of enforcement action defendants that are taking this Fifth Circuit opinion to the next step. You know, they're saying, how can we actually apply it in their cases? And kind of in taking it to, to different levels of application, you know, whether it's a judgment or a settlement or a rule or so on. And so far, we have not actually seen the courts rule on this. This is something that is still very new. Uh, it's, you know, the decision in the Fifth Circuit came down only last week. So really, we're just seeing kind of the tip of the sphere here and how it's actually getting applied. But it's very clear that it's going to be a long-running source of dispute in the CFPB's cases, probably for the next few months, if not years. Yeah. And I'm also really curious about how the CFPB is responding to those challenges that are already surfacing? Do they, have you seen any of those responses yet? Is there a strategy emerging? <laughs> I'm sure they're not, you know, just going to be like, well, you're right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, actually, uh, interesting you say that like, the last administration, uh, during the Trump administration, the CPB had a different constitutional challenge brought against it. That's actually exactly what they did. At a certain point, they said, the director said, you know what, I thought about it and you're right. We are unconstitutionally structured in this way. And so she, she opted not to defend the structure at the Supreme Court. They had to appoint a, a third party to do that. But in this case, we've got a different administration, one that's very much a, a big supporter of the CFPB, very advocate, cons- uh, very strong, excuse me, consumer advocate, and uh, Director Rohit Chopra. And what he's doing uh, is actually saying nothing. He, they really have not put out a lot of uh, public commentary on this, other than to say, you know, we, we all got to keep pressing on with our job, our mission to protect consumers. But what you're seeing in court filings is that there's already been at least one case where the CFPB has filed a response to some of these arguments saying, trying to invoke the Fifth Circuit decision. And they're, they're coming out swinging for that Fifth Circuit decision. They're saying, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's inconsistent with precedent. Uh, it is, I think, as the phrase goes in one of those filings, without support and law. And they argue that, look, the Fifth Circuit actually cannot point to a single other case where uh, they the, a court has ruled that this particular kind of funding structure, at least this sort of independent funding structure is actually unconstitutional. And, and even in the CFPB's case, you see that, it, you know, seven, I believe, other courts have actually kind of addressed this issue. And they've all said, no, we don't see a problem here. The Texas federal judge who ruled on the case earlier had said, no, he didn't see a problem there either. So really, they are kind of the outlier on all of this. But it's it's a, a huge problem, of course, for the Bureau to have now this precedent that all these other companies can point to. So they've, they've been very strong in attacking it. They have not actually officially said yet whether they will appeal, but uh, that is something that you would expect to see next. You know, and pretty soon they'll probably have to make a decision about that and try to either seek rehearing at the Fifth Circuit, you know, before the full court, or possibly even skip straight to the Supreme Court. I mean, it seems like they're 
it seems pretty inevitable that they will probably take that step because they're also left not just with things they've already decided or settlements they've already made that are being challenged now on the basis of this Fifth Circuit ruling, but also anything they continue to do. I would imagine it's just a recipe for an instant lawsuit every time they go after someone new. That is certainly the concern. And if you are a regulated company, if the CFPB regulates you, this isn't necessarily great because you know there are a lot of rules that the CFPB has issued over the years that kind of provide uh, um, stability to your industry. They they give you a sense of you know predictability about you know what everyone is going to be doing to ensure compliance. Uh, in some cases, they might have safe harbors that protect you from getting sued. And uh, if the bureau's entire you know past ten plus years of work could get invalidated, that might leave you out there actually swinging. Like you, you don't necessarily want that. So, so in a, in a weird way, there's like the, the collective interests are against this, perhaps from an industry perspective, but the individual interest of like defeating an enforcement action or a rule that you don't like is very strong in favor of going after this attack. So, so it, it's kind of an odd, you know, you know, internal contradiction there, but it's something that the Bureau, I think, will definitely want to challenge just to preserve its own integrity and ability to keep operating going forward. It's just a question of whether the appeals court, you know, the full Fifth Circuit would actually even take an appeal. I mean, I think that's actually an open question. There are 16 active judges on the court, seven at this point. I mean, it gets a bit nuanced exactly how you get to that number, but basically seven of the 16 have already basically come out to say, yes, we think the CFPB is unconstitutionally funded. So that means nine other judges haven't actually staked out a position on this. But when you look at the composition of those judges, it's really unlikely that you'd get to the point where enough people would vote to rehear the case, the CFPB would actually get a chance to have that appeal. So then you look at the Supreme Court, where you've got a 6-3 conservative majority that's already ruled against the bureau structure before in a different context. You know, it's not a really very friendly environment for the bureau to be arguing. So, so it really looks like an uphill battle for the agency in the long run. And that's really a difficult position for the director, Chopra, to be in uh, and, you know, these companies as well. So it's, it's really uh, high stakes litigation that we're going to be seeing in the next, again, few months to years. But uh, it will be something to watch very closely. This is just wild, truly, to uh, to witness. Um, and it's all moving so fast. Everyone who's listening, if you haven't read John's reporting on this, it is incredible. Head over to the website. John, thank you so much for joining the show today. Always happy to come on whenever there's an existential challenge to my agency. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I think we may have to talk about this yet again because this crisis remains. So thanks for being on the show today, John. Glad to be here. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and I'm thrilled to be back just in time for Halloween. Yeah, to just talk. under the wire here. Yeah, I mean, it's my favorite holiday, and I couldn't let the opportunity go by to uh, miss talking about spooky legal costume ideas, guys. That's what I want to <laughs> oh, do. Oh, boy. <laughs> Come on. This is service journalism. All the law students, all the attorneys out there who may be, like, scrambling for their costume. Oh, yeah. We're going to give them some good ideas. The law students especially. I mean, Amber, I'm sure you went to some Halloween parties in law school. Was it like, you're the only one on the call who's been to law school? Do people in you, I mean, that was some years ago, but is it like, do people like are, like are there tryhards who are, who are trying to do like. <laughs> I mean, I will also out myself as a tryhard most well, of the time. Well, I didn't want to so put you on blast that. there. I was trying to <laughs> anonymize it, but yeah. Um, I will say my 1L year, a lot of people dressed up for 
like Halloween day in class. Like, and oh, and no. obviously did like a funny legal costume. A lot of them get repetitive. I will mention some as we continue this chat. Okay, yeah, sure, please. please. Yes. Let's get into it. Here's kind of how I, I decided that I really wanted to talk about this with you guys. There's an attorney named Jody Sanders, who's yeah. an appellate pro in Texas. He works for a firm called Kelly Hart, who had two really funny tweets over the past like week or so. One of them, he said, for Halloween, I'm going as scary decisis. Disregard me at your peril, which okay. I thought was a funny pun. And you can know you guys know I'm a sucker for a pun. Yeah. But this is the one that really got me going. On further consideration, I'm going as a disaffected appellate vampire. I'm calling it what we do in the shadows docket. Yeah. Nice. See, I, that's shadows like docket, that. guys. That's that's good. good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that and, one. And timely. You know, the shadow docket is getting further cast into the light every with each passing term here. So it, it's huh. also real catnip for me because it's a pun. It also is Supreme Court stuff. And I love what we do in the shadows as a TV show. It's really got it all for me. So. Really, kudos to Jody. Great ideas there. Yeah, but I feel like this is a pretense because I know you have some other ideas. I do. Uh, I do. And maybe, and maybe um, as I as I hinted, you've maybe encountered these in uh, legal academia. I don't know. I will not speak on the um, <laughs> whether or not these are good ideas. Some okay. of them are, in fact, actively bad, but almost in that way where like it's so bad it comes back around to being fun. So yeah, sure. I kind of categorize these in a couple buckets, and I'd like your all's reactions. Okay. If you're late or lazy and you just need a quick costume, one that I've seen on the internet is to just wear like, you know, jeans and a t-shirt, put a big piece of paper on yourself that says exhibit A. Hey. Classic. That's me. Every day of my life, I'm exhibit, <laughs> uh, exhibit <laughs> That's a. That's one for like in your office too, where you're like, are people going to, I don't know, maybe I should do something a little fun, but I don't want to commit. That's the gym helper. That's the that's the uh, gym yeah, yes. approach. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I what else? Couple classic legal pun ideas. One that comes up all the time that you're gonna groan. I just know it. Two people. One dresses up as a salt shaker. The other one as a battery. Yeah. And you're a salt and battery. <sighs> come Next. On, come on. All right. Fine. <laughs> this <laughs> one's better. This salt one's a little better. Yeah. Uh, get yourself a nice sash, little crown. Go as Miss Trial. Miss Trial. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> come on. Okay. Very <laughs> I good. I like that better. Okay, okay, here's my next bucket to see what you guys think of these. There's so many lawyers you could dress up as, like real or fictionalized. But the problem with lawyers is that it's usually just people in a suit. Sure. So it's a little tough to like have somebody just see you at a party and know what you, who you're pretending yeah. to be. But I have a few that I think stand out. This is done so just overdone. But a classic is RBG. Yeah, you know. And I think this year we might see more Katanji Brown Jacksons because that's another person uh, that's yes. pretty recognizable. Let's be careful though about who goes as Katanji Brown Jackson. Yes, yes. You know what I'm Please saying? Please, yeah. Use oh my God. There. Cultures and costumes, people. Okay. Uh, the other one that's easily recognizable and you see at parties almost every year, Elle Woods. Just a quick and easy one. Lots of pink. True classic. Good. I like the idea of going as Elle Woods as the Playboy Bunny, Elle Woods, when she mistakenly oh, goes uh, to yeah. the Halloween yeah, sure. party. Which she mistakenly goes to what she thinks is a costume party. I think that's great. And people yeah, could, people will think you're being a Playboy bunny and you're like, actually, I'm Elle Woods as a Playboy <laughs> bunny. Yeah. Meta. Yes. Other than Elle, I've got two more fictional attorneys that I think would be pretty recognizable. One is my all-time favorite fictional attorney, Saul Goodman. 
Okay. Now, I mean, that is a good one. Are you doing like the beat up, like the like yeah. band aid? Yeah, yeah. That's sure. Funny. And also, he wears the flashy suits. I think yeah. he could really have some fun with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that one could be pretty good. And then my last one harkens back to the Pro Se Movie Club. Vinny Gambini, I think, would be a good one. That's another fun one where you got a couple different options there. The you leather do, jacket. You do I the leather jacket. Oh, see, I was going to say the maroon tuxedo. With oh, the, sure. Uh, that's great, too. With the yeah. tails and the and the frilly. Now uh, I feel like there should be people out there that go as the different versions of Vinny, uh, which yes. would be really funny. A good group costume. Sure. And, and someone yeah. as the Marissa Tomei. That's what I'm saying. For a couple's costume, you go as Vinny and uh, Mona Lisa Vito. It's that's, just a, that's a great costume. You're the so, head of the party there. Okay, so those are my ideas, guys, um, for the listeners out there that might want to grab a legal costume. But I am curious if there's anything else that you have on your list. Well, I mean, I don't really dress up anymore, so I can't really, like, endorse these as, like, a nominal adult. But if you're interested, I did jot down some ideas. Of course, there's Sexy William Rehnquist. (laughs) Oh, sure. Sexy Rid of Mandamus. Are all of these sexy? Sexy Uh Motion and Lemony. No, they're not all. Just those. Here's an idea. Also in the Jim Halpert school, Amber, much like Exhibit A, yep. um, pick any civil statute, maybe one to do with attorney's fees or one to do with damages. Print out two copies of them. Tape them both to yourself. Leave one normal and mark the other one up with red marker all over the place. Rewrites, arrows, moving them around, one next to the other, Tape to your chest. What are you? Your tort reform. You're the hit oh, of the party. Everyone yeah, loves it. There Everyone we loves go. it. Do it. You know um, what? That is <laughs> that's some good stuff, Alex. Come on now. I mean, then that's that's a no-brainer. That'll take you two seconds. Um, <laughs> here's one if you want to get a little more involved. You remember on the rehearsal when Nathan Fielder had the little laptop caddy oh, that yeah. would put the laptop like at chest height for him? Uh-huh. If you get something like that, like a rig like that that sits about at chest height, you put a plank of wood on it. And you can super glue some like, um, I don't know, airplane size liquor bottles to it. And then uh, you put some Scantrons or what looks like a multiple choice test form hanging off the edge. Are you the bar exam? You're the bar exam. That's exactly right, Amber. Great. You know what? I have an idea riffing on that. You can use the same same rig, but instead you put little markers uh, that list people in charge. So, you know, Supreme Court Justice, President, your boss's name. And you are a table of authorities. Yes. See, this yeah. is great. Yeah, exactly the kind of thing. There's a um, lot of stuff you can do here. Here's another one. So normal clothes, or actually, let's say you get like black pants and like a dress shirt, maybe a name tag, crucially, and uh, one of those old powdered white wigs that judges used to wear. And then you walk around with a notepad asking people if they'd like to hear the specials. And then you take their orders. And what are you? Your order in the court. Oh, wow. 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 We're killing the game here. Uh, Okay. Last one. Uh, You're not a sports fan. I know Haley is, but there's a basketball player uh, on the, on the Brooklyn Nets named Ben Simmons. His last name is Simmons. All you have to do is wear a Ben Simmons jersey or uh, maybe even a shirt jersey. That's a little cheaper. A little uh, masking tape and marker. You scratch out the eye. You're Ben Simmons. Cool. Yeah. Great. There you go. And then you spend the party. And then you spend the party thinking about serving process to people. And then you decide not to. I will tell you as the final thing I'll say on the topic of legal Halloween costumes. Sure. I have often considered doing this myself. One of these days I am going to do it. So I'm spoiling my own surprise. But I'd like to dress up as the Pro Se logo. 
Oh, wow. Uh, because she is Lady Justice, but also wearing headphones. She's, she's listening and she's listening to a she's podcast. She's listening to Pro Se. Right. So one of these days, I'm going to really just lean into my own narcissism and yeah. dress as our own podcast logo. That's something to aspire to. And I look forward to, uh, to seeing that. Well, happy Halloween. Thanks for being with me today. It's been a great show. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our guests, John Hill, our contributing reporters, Frank Runyon and Irene Spezamonte. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. Other people find us more easily that way. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.